So welcome everyone to another episode of End of the World Podcast with your host, Anton Roberts. So today we have a great guest. Um, today I'm speaking with Robert Alcock, who is a researcher at MMU, um, who will be talking about his work. Welcome, Rob, to the show. Anton, thanks for inviting me on. Whew, I, was get, I was getting worried for a sec there. I was like, <laughs> bad start, bad start. But uh, no, it's, 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 it's nice to have you on. Um, so we usually kind of start with just a just a just a bit of a bit of an intro in terms of obviously who you are. So, um, first question: Could you maybe give us a, a bit of a talk about your uh, your sort of like personal background, maybe your kind of like sort of like career, sort of like trajectory, and how you became a a PhD student, and then, and then we'll maybe we'll 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 delve in from there. If that's all right. Well, hi. Uh, I'm going into my uh, second year of my PhD full time in the. Department of Social Care and Social Work at Manchester Met. Um, and my background um, is I worked as a social worker in local authority adult services for a number of years before um, returning kind of down back down the academic route. I qualified as a social worker, uh, master's in social work in 2013 uh, from Liverpool John Moores, and then I worked uh, in two local authorities in the Northwest, um, worked on a team uh, with people with learning disabilities and then kind of latterly in a more general adults team where I worked with a huge array of different um, sort of service users. There's a lot of work then with, with older people. Uh, I kind of knew that I always wanted to return back down the academic route, uh, so to speak. Um, I got the inspiration from a project from um, the work that had done in terms of seeing the Care Act um, as a huge kind of legislative legislative overhaul come in during the period when I was in practice. And uh, yeah, through the uh, White Rose Doctoral Training Partnership, got um, kind of a place, so to speak, to study at Manchester Met, did the ma Masters in Social uh, Research starting in 2019 and then moved on to the PhD. Brilliant. Okay, Rob. So, do you want to do you want to maybe start start by telling us why you well, you know, what your sort of uh, PhD is 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 about, and then and then we can get into the nitty gritty of of you know, um, you know, the actual bits and pieces of it. But just like a general kind of introduction to what your what your PhD is about. Yes, yeah, certainly, Anton. So, I'm um, looking at a specific form of advocacy within um, the English adult social care system. Um, the Working title or the title at present of my project is to have their voices heard, a realist study of independent advocacy under the Care Act 2014. So um, it's looking, as I say, at a particular type of advocacy that um, sort of is generally referred to as Care Act advocacy, um, introduced um, by the, the very sort of significant um, legal change of the Care Act. Um, and for the study, um, um, doing essentially the, the, the backbone of my data collection is case studies of two local authority areas, uh, working sort of with um, the local authority there and in to a sort of respective um, organizations that provide independent advocacy in those um, in those local authority areas. So they're commissioned by the local authority to do this. Uh, and I'm kind of taking a multi sort of stakeholder perspective where I'm conducting interviews with um, um, in terms of local authority with um, sort of managers involved in commissioning mm -hmm. um, care act advocacy. And I'm also going to be conducting focus groups with social workers who are the people who um, kind of have a key role in terms of referring people to advocacy and then working alongside advocates um, in the practice that they do with social workers. And in terms of the advocacy organisations, I'm sort of speaking to different kind of players there in terms of people in management roles obviously care act advocates themselves absolutely crucial and crucially as well um some people who have um experience of using care act advocacy services uh, and in addition to this because it's kind of this kind of centered on two local authorities as i think 153 off the top of my head might be wrong 150 odd 
um, local authorities in England that have uh, social care responsibilities. So obviously it's a very small um, sample size, so to speak. It's kind of um, deep rather than broad in that sense. Mm, So to to try and kind of uh, get a little bit of an overview perspective, I'm speaking to some kind of individuals who are kind of... um, Oh, experts in the sector, experts in the field, in a sense, in terms of people, you know, involved in wider policy regarding independent advocacy uh, at different levels. So people who are able to kind of, um, kind of um, sort of see it, see perhaps a picture beyond the specific local authority perspective. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, no, brilliant. That was, a, that was a great intro. Um, so I think there's probably a couple of things in there that maybe we could kind of like explain to people. So uh, maybe like a, like an uh, an obvious one, but is there is there like an agreed definition of what of what makes a advocate? Um, you know, like or is it or is it like a really contested kind of thing? Um, yeah, I imagine probably a lot, a lot of debate there. Definitely, it's a, it's a it's it really is. That's a it's a good question because it's very very much at the sort of the crux of of things. It it is a very broad concept, advocacy. Um, you know, and and whilst I'm looking at a particular type of advocacy that is kind of quite well defined in terms of its um, sort of place within statute etc one of the things that I'm keen to do is to try and look at that care act advocacy within the context of the wider uh, advocacy landscape so to speak Um, so advocacy yeah it's um, kind of um, it's it's a word that's obviously got a very wide broad kind of usage in different contexts um it apparently goes back to sort of 15th century it's got french and latin origins and uh, i say don't speak latin but one of the things that i kind of read that's quite interesting is the root of the term uh comes from vocare or however that's um pronounced in latin which is the the um the verb to call and this is this notion of calling and voice is something that keeps coming up in in advocacy um the the notion of supporting people to have a voice uh, that's kind of like comes from the root word really and in terms of my title to have their voices heard sort of phrased as a question mm-hmm. that goes back to the um statutory guidance around um care act advocacy um which states that uh Care Act advocacy involves supporting a person to understand information, express their needs and wishes, secure their rights, represent their interests, and obtain the care and support they need. And it also states that high quality advocacy services are, quote, essential for people to have their voices heard, to exercise choice and control, and to live independently. So that sort of pull out quote, I guess, is, is kind of um, what I, I used as one of the, the hinge points for my former title so um yeah it's got a real strong sort of historical lineage used in so many different contexts i mean um it's got a legal connotation uh, i think in scotland still the um the barristers are referred to as advocates in kind of roman law it's a um kind of embedded as a term it's also used in a um very widely and i think really increasingly popular increasingly regularly these days in a kind of campaigning sense um the notion you know environmental advocacy human rights advocacy in terms of a broad campaigning uh platform and um interestingly in some other countries uh such as in the united states social work advocacy actually has a um an overlap with this kind of um cause-based advocacy um through things like the, the um, community organizer um role that they have in the united states um it's quite quite uh, well embedded there and um kind of um came to a lot of people's attention barack obama um had worked as a community organizer as one of his first jobs um in the 1980s after initially leaving university so um it's kind of really diffuse and we we talk sometimes in the advocacy sector there's quite a bit of talk between the distinction between case advocacy cause advocacy and cause advocacy and I've, I've sort of touched on the latter case advocacy is more a kind of 
individually focused work trying to advance people's kind of rights within the sort of constraints i suppose of the existing uh, system um and in in instead of in terms of britain we we can see both in terms of the historical um kind of character and development of advocacy we can see both of these elements of cause advocacy and case advocacy but certainly in terms of um the contemporary adult social care system what has uh, become more prominent is is case advocacy the individualized kind of um relationship between the advocate and the service user um and on the point of terminology um the as with everything you get into these terminological there's you know terminological kind of considerations I, i'll be honest i use the term service user and that's really sort of betrays my kind of service my social worker kind of background mm-hmm. quite quite a lot in the advocacy sector people talk about partners so we talk about the advocate and the advocacy partner but anyway that, that's that's just pointing out so some people may 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 differ from, from me there but um you know so the kind of um going back sort of to your question really um it, it is a very broad landscape um in terms of advocacy uh we have what are called statutory advocacy roles so they're defined obviously in law and um they are legal requirements in certain situations care act advocacy that i'm focusing on obviously is is one of these types but there's other types as well that were introduced prior to care act advocacy in the um, in the mid 2000s mid to late 2000s and their roles of independent mental capacity advocate or imca and imha in the uh, independent mental health advocate very important roles but they are more tightly defined those roles than the care act advocacy role which is I would say more expansive and wide ranging. Yeah, Perhaps. I was I, I was going to ask it in, in terms of mm. like mental, well, essentially like uh, capacity. Because I, I was trying to get my head around, you know, like in what situation you would, you know, you would need, you know, like obviously because we're, we're we're talking about adult social care, right? So uh-huh. at what at, at what point would you require, um, you know, a, a, a advocate of of that type? Is it is it you know for somebody who might have like learning like le- learning difficulties or you know you know is is it just someone there who maybe has the the legal know-how, um, you know, like what, what's the kind of criteria there for, 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 for needing someone yeah, like that? Sure. Sure. Anton. Well, you know, this is where it gets complicated in a sense. And, you know, some of these kind of scholars who've critiqued the current, um, kind of, uh, advocacy range arrangements, um, it was a paper by Jeremy Dixon and colleagues, uh, only in the last year or so, that took this point uh, can point to what is uh, increasingly quite a complex landscape of legislation where there's different pieces of advocacy legislation through the IMCA, the IMHA, and now the Care Act advocacy roles that do actually overlap with each other to some extent. That does make it does make things harder. But essentially, the first piece of statutory advocacy that hits the statute books really was the role of the, the IMCA role under the Capacity Act. Now, this introduced the requirement to um, instruct a mental capacity advocate uh, in really very, very specific circumstances. So it's people who are, um, I think the term is unbefriended uh, within the legal sense, but it's basically people who, who don't have uh, appropriate um kind of support from friends or family but it, and it's people who've got who've been assessed to lack um mental capacity to make a specific decision under the um, mental capacity act and it's when they've been assessed to lack capacity to make a specific decision around two very important areas very uh, and they are the roles of uh, the areas of serious medical treatment so it's consent to have serious medical treatment Mm. or around movements um changes of accommodation so for example somebody leaving their own home and going into a care home there in those circumstances when all those things stack up under the mental capacity act 2005 there was a requirement to um have uh, the role of independent mental capacity advocate and in those circumstances we have um what is um 
defined under a law as a process of best interests, where a decision basically is made on somebody's behalf because they've been assessed to lack capacity around that decision. And um, there's a process where essentially this is done by professionals, although others feed into this. And when there's disputes or where it's particularly contentious decisions, these decisions go all the way up to, you know, the legal sphere and the court of protection. And sometimes yeah. uh, we, you know, um, some of these court of protection cases uh, do make sort of the news, headline news, because they become really, you know, uh, of, of great, you know, of great concern around, you know, ending people's lives in terms of, um, you know, medical treatments, et cetera. And, um, you know, withdrawing treatments, et cetera. So, um, so that's a very specific um, role of the independent mental capacity advocate. The independent mental health advocate um, is really, again, quite tightly defined, and it's really quite specific to people who are um, whose care comes under specific sections of the Mental Health Act, uh, and it's really most widely for people who've been detained, obviously under a section of the Mental Health Act in inpatient care. Uh, and it's really about supporting them in terms of their understanding their circumstances and in terms of what their rights are in that context. It's also for people on things like community um, community treatment orders in the community. So um, the Care Act advocacy role that I'm looking at, which came a few years later, is really interesting because it took those kind of concepts of uh, a legal duty to provide advocacy and broadened it out much more um, substantially. So it's effectively the terminology in um, the, the legislation is when people have substantial difficulty uh, around engaging with adult social care processes. So there are things like assessment, care and support planning, also safeguarding people under the Care Act. And in terms of your question, it's a really good one um, about um, what these criteria are. The substantial difficulty criteria is not pegged to any kind of uh, medical criteria. It's very much a kind of uh, sort of a functional assessment that essentially the social worker or um, social care professional um, needs to kind of um, satisfy themselves that you know the person does need this kind, kind of support usually it is because a person has some kind of kind of cognitive impairment but certainly in my experience um the obviously the kind of the the scope of people who fall then under this um you know advocacy uh, eligibility is incredibly broad because it ranges from people who may, you know, have um, just very, say, very mild learning disability, uh, mm. be able to, you know, obviously communicate verbally extremely, extremely well, and may very much know their own, you know, have very strong views and well-informed views about, you know, what's going on, about what they want to happen from that situation and just need a little bit of extra kind of assistance around what are potentially very complex social care processes. Yeah, well, I think it links in, like, you know, it, 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 it links in really strongly to ideas of power, doesn't it? Because like, you know, you're essentially with what you're describing as well as, especially with, you know, things like the mental health act and obviously like assessing, you know, whether people are capable of making these decisions. Mm -hmm. like, it, it, it seems that like the role itself is, is, um, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to say, I want to say open to abuse, but obviously like there is a huge responsibility there um, for those individuals to, in a sense, to, to get it right. Because, you know, there, there's that tension is there between like, are they speaking with them or, or for them? Um, I'd, uh, it's not exactly the same, but uh, I used to work as a support worker uh -huh. and on numerous occasions I was asked to be like an appropriate adult. Um, yeah. You know, for sort of like young people in 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 quite in quite a dicey legal situation, you know, like in, in uh, custody suites and, uh -huh. uh, and things like that. And in that in that sort of in, in that sort of situation where you know they often wouldn't speak, and I was speaking for them, I I, I found that role to be deeply deeply ambiguous. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways, I was quite uncomfortable by the level of power I had because I was aware that I had no legal knowledge <laughs> in that, in yeah, that situation yeah. whatsoever. I was like, you know, am, am I am I helping? Am I really qualified to help them here? Mm -hmm. you know, do I really have their best interests at heart? Um, it like there's a really there's a really important power aspect to to, to this relationship for me, um, which I thought was quite interesting when you you know when I was reading your work. 
Um, yeah, sure, Anton. I mean, that's that's a great point. Um, in kind of sort of the the core sort of ethos of advocacy, it really mm. is about trying to ensure that sort of the person's own voice is heard. To use you know kind of those terms, and is very much clearly about the advocate um, not imposing their own views on the situation. Um, that obviously is the the very sound principle obviously getting sort of into the the reality obviously is is obviously always more complex Mm -hmm. one of the clear things about why independent advocacy is there kind of in statute is very much the notion that it is independent um so and it you know really clearly is branded as being a kind of a counterweight to what is effectively state power so the it gets complex really because the the professionals involved uh, including the likes of obviously social workers you know traditionally as social workers we were always taught that you know advocacy is in a sense part of our role as social workers and i would say to agree with that to a very significant extent but there is always a um kind of a cutoff point in some respects where ultimately if you're a social worker employed by a local authority, mm. there's only, there's always a limit to the extent to which you are independent because ultimately, you know, you are involved in doing things like determining people's eligibility for um, care and support involved in some sense in resource allocation decisions, potentially using pieces of legislation such as the capacity act, um, even on the mental health act that do have potentially quite um um sort of you know um restraining um you know impinging on people's uh, liberties ultimately you know, yeah, in, yeah, you know freedoms, perhaps, yeah, perhaps, sure. perhaps with good cause of course so the the advocates their role varies to be a counterweight um in terms of um how that actually works and how that power um dynamic is is managed so this is obviously something that i am um kind of really at the at the focal point of the research and obviously i'm at the stage now where i'm just i've just got my ethical approval so the uh the oh, research congrats. thank you very much the research interviews are going to be taken some of the taking place next week actually so the ball's rolling there i can't unfortunately kind of report any kind of uh any initial findings, but, you know, in, ter- in terms of the literature that's out there at present, there's quite a number of things that are impacting on this power dynamic and this advocacy relationship. Um, do you want us to touch on some of these that are being thought of, you know, considered to date? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah well, the there are questions. One of the things is um, about how truly independent Care Act advocacy providers can be. Obviously, they are independent organisations, uh, many of them sort of third sector type type organisations, but uh, they are ultimately, you know, commissioned by local authorities to to provide this service. So, as people who've, you know, questioned in terms of how much true leeway this gives advocacy providers, uh, and there have been, you know, some people who've uh, talked about possibly having some form of nationally um organized advocacy provision and that's been talked about in terms of people with learning disabilities and autistic people who are in um sort of um inpatient placements often under the mental health act uh where they might be in quite um you know restrictive forms of um accommodation and care mm. and obviously um you know in terms of the what's happened since a Winterbourne View scandal of a decade ago, you know, this has become a really um, big priority area in social care policy about um, appropriately supporting, um, you know, people um, people in these circumstances and obviously about the need to absolutely wherever possible people have, have people, you know, in, in the least restrictive forms of care, you know, in the community, closer to families, etc. So advocacy does have a really important role there. But, um, you know, this is something that the government's uh, recent white paper on uh, reforming the Mental Health Act identified as something that needs um, kind of extra work doing in terms of ensuring there's appropriate advocacy and ensuring there's appropriately appropriately, um, 
specialized and trained advocates to do what can be a particularly um you know taxing form of work and what you said there about um training and support for advocates etc this is so, again something i'm looking at i think the advocacy sector has made huge um sort of strides over the last decade or two when when these statutory roles were introduced yeah in terms of becoming a more formalized kind of occupation uh whereas you know was now you know a sort of city and guilds um qualification that advocates must train towards well, it's quite a weird skill set really if, if you think about it because it's kind of like um i don't know it's it's sort of like part kind of therapist sort of part solicitor part what negotiator i mean it seems it see it seems like you'd have to have a really kind of i don't know quite a varied skill set to be able to be able to do this well um I think that's that is absolutely right, and that reading the um, statutory guidance on the Care Act advocacy role, that that I was struck by exactly that what how what the description is, and as you say, it does talk about, you know, emotional support for people undergoing safeguarding um, procedures around, like you say, having some kind of you know baseline legal knowledge because advocates do have a role in challenging local authorities on people's mm, behalves. Yeah. Uh, and that, again, is something I want to look at um, about, you know, how this, this, this role of challenge is actually being sort of um, done in practice and to what with what results, because this is something that's a bit of a, um, a kind of an area that does need more, more, more of a spotlight on it. And it is actually something that the Equalities and Human Rights Commission are currently um, have a um, an inquiry about challenging decisions within adult social care and uh, advocacy is one of the things they are looking at as well at present. So it is really wide ranging. Um, there's a lot of debates within the sector that are, that are coming to increase prominence now, uh, but have been kicking around for some time around whether we're at the stage where advocacy should be treated like other professions, so to speak, within adult social care. So at the minute, um, advocacy services are not regulated by the Care Quality Commission. They do have a lot of um, other kind of forms of um, other forms of, um, you know, re regulation of them. But, sure, sure. Uh, and they're not, the adv advocates are not, um, um, they're not, um, sorry, reg registered, um, professionally registered in the same way that social workers, nurses are, etc. So there's quite a bit of debate about that going on in the sector at present. Hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if if you could answer this as well. But when I when I was reading about obviously about this this style of work and, and I suppose the, the, the difficulties you would encounter as well, it kind of seemed to me that, and again, I wasn't sure this was included in the training that. These, ad, these advocates would probably need kind of quite a high level of kind of like sort of, um, you know, like cultural kind of like competency, right? Because like when, you know, because like one, one thing I found is, is, you know, even just as like an appropriate adult, it's just like the, the level and difference of your clients, right? So, like, so you might have, you know, young offenders or, um, you know, like people of different ages, like different abilities. You might have, you know, people of, of you know, different different like genders and, and race and, and, and all those things are quite integral, aren't they, to kind of trying to assess the interests of people at all. It's almost like a therapist um, having that like cultural, like competent, uh, co competency to be able to help clients of different backgrounds and stuff, you know? That, that uh, is an absolutely excellent point. And it really is something that is, is kind of really kind of, um, kind of um, going to inform, form um, a study in a big way. Yeah. It's certainly, and it's something that, that's really come to the fore within sort of adult social care policy at present. So the, the white paper that the government published on reforming the mental health factor at the start yeah. of this year, kind of obviously specific to mental health, but it kind of, when it talks about advocacy, it talks more broadly about the advocacy sector. And um, it talks about this sort of cultural competency and cultural appropriateness in, in a big sort of way. So it relates that um, most specifically to the really important issue about big, um, huge ethnic disparities in terms of people being uh, detained under the Mental Health Act. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, people from black backgrounds being a particularly huge disparity. So it identifies a need for more culturally uh, competent advocacy services, um, um, to, you know, to work, 
to work with people from different different communities. Um, it's also it also highlights, as I say, the the kind of um, the issue about you know specialist practice with people with learning disabilities and autistic people. So I've in my kind of uh, sort of literature review of etc. I've sort of spoken about different dimensions of diversity, really, in terms of kind of one, I suppose, in a sense, is a more medicalized kind of differential between people, you know, people with learned disabilities, people with mm. dementia, um, you know, people with quiet brain injuries, etc. How advocacy, in a sense, through the legislation has become more generic. Um, a lot of advocacy services are, you know, for, for everyone in a sense who meet those kind of criteria. Are, are those services able to provide the necessary kind of specialist support for people, you know, um, with different conditions, et cetera, uh, because there are, you know, differences that do arise from those. And the other dimension of diversity is kind of, you know, as you've highlighted there, ethnicity, uh, gender, sexuality, all those kind of huge intersectional um, aspects of social identity, you know, um, that are out there. Um, so, yeah, I, I think in terms of, you know, obviously what is research to date has shown to be really important is the nature of that individual relationship between the advocate uh, and the service user, the advocate and the partner. And, um, you know, I think it's really um, important to, to try. And one of the things I will try and see from, you know, my, my interviews is to do how people perceive that dynamic and, and to what extent, you know, some of these factors, um, you know, impinge on, on that relationship, how mm -hmm. well services feel they're able to meet the diversity of the communities they serve. And that includes things like language, obviously, um, you know, in terms of if it's a community where there's different languages spoken, to what extent are advocates, you know, able to what extent there are advocates who have different language skills, what extent are they able to draw upon, obviously, you know, interpreter, translation services, etc. So really big, important issues there. What has been shown by, there has been some work done um, kind of in adjacent areas that so there's some work done uh, a big um sort of um realist evaluation done about um domestic abuse advocacy um done in um done in a couple of years ago now and that this was really interesting because it looked at that advocacy relationship in some depth and it did sort of find some evidence that advocates who had some elements of shared experience with um, the people they were working with, i.e. advocates who themselves had experienced domestic abuse, were found to be able to um, develop, to, you know, that was found to be a benefit for the advocacy strength. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. There, are, there are some things that, 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 you, that you just can't teach, isn't there? Really? There's a certain lived experience that allows you to sort of yeah, connect with these people. Definitely, definitely. Um, no, it's, 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 um, it's, it's, it's funny in many ways how... Um, well, how many sort of parallels there are to different kind of fields and stuff? Because my well, part of my background is sort of mental health and psychology, and there's there's often that tension between kind of sticking to like a very manualized kind of approach, right? Um, which kind of like one size fits all, but then also trying to tailor it to the, the unique needs of that individual, and mm. um, it can be it can be difficult when you've got a very general service, kind of like the one that you're that you're you're describing, but then obviously trying to repackage that so it's you know, culturally competent and all that can be, can be really, really challenging. So, uh, yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting you to, uh, to, 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 <laughs> no solve, to solve that problem, but, um, yeah, I just wonder if, 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 you know, in your field that they were, they were thinking about the same sorts of issues, but, um, obviously they are and they've, uh, and they've, 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 they've done a lot of work in it. So, um, mm, there's definitely um, a lot of work on going around this. Absolutely. Mm. Well, well, you've, 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 you've mentioned your clients there, so maybe it'd be quite nice now if, if you maybe shift again and, you know, maybe you want to talk to us a little bit about, um, obviously, like in terms of your like methodology and and what you're intending to do. I think you think you mentioned that you're using like a critical realism, right? Um, for your for your kind of work, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, how you're doing it. Um, you know, how you're going to be interviewing it and what methods you're using, just just to give us a flavour. Yeah, absolutely, Anton. Well, critical realism um, is 
is kind of the main sort of paradigm, I guess, that I'm using. And so I'm getting sort of overly bogged down in the in the philosophy, um, the research philosophy of a critical, critical mm. realism. Um, it kind of looks at um, the notion, well, it's it's got a kind of a realist ontology, uh, which is absolutely crucial. So real, critical realism is saying that there are um, real things that exist in the world that are external to human perception. And I, I can feel all the PhD students just face palming right now. Oh, the ontology. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's kind of it's for me, it's sort of saying there are real things. There's real, um, you know, a real, real events out there. There's causation, which is absolutely mm -hmm. crucial. Some things lead to other things, etc. Sure, sure. But this is tied to a kind of a, um, a sort of more relativist epistemology. So it's basically saying that as human beings, although there's, re there's a reality out there, we only have necessarily you know a really quite partial uh view of this reality and you know we can be wrong about things etc so you know critical realism it's often termed as well a depth ontology so it's looking it's basically um the uh, the person who sort of created critical realism essentially originated it roy Bhaskar talked about um a stratified notion of a, a stratified notion of reality where there's deep underlying kind of structural forces that you know shape um shape kind of our experience um and you know these are all you know big structural things things happening in in the economy things happening in society but all of those things interact with each other it's not like a monocausal thing where it's saying it's all about you know class disparities it's all about you know gender inequalities it's saying that you know in, in reality you know reality is shaped by the conjunction of a lot of different structural forces all playing out within specific circumstances. And it's in terms of Bhaskar's depth ontology, it's saying that the layer above this really is, is, um, is what he calls the actual. So it's the things that do actually occur. So it's how those structural forces play out, how they shape, you know, things like events that do happen external to human perception. And then the final layer of the top layer of Bhaskar's ontology is like the empirical level. So it's what we sort of experience, um, you know, and perceive as human beings. So I just think that this is, for me, it's kind of what chimes with, I guess, in a sense, not sounding too um, grandiose about it, really almost, for me, it does have, does provide what I see as quite a good way of viewing the world, you know, where it does allow for it's, it's, there's a humility to it. It's saying that we don't have, we'll only have part of the puzzle, uh, but it's not getting mired in absolute forms of relativism where, you know, it's you, you, this is your truth. This is my truth. It, you know, and that we're saying all that they're all always completely, you know, equally valid with each other because, you know, some people can be wrong about some people can be right about some things and some people because there is there is an objective reality that we can gauge things against we will never know entirely you know the answers to you know at any given time but we can through pursuing the evidence we can get as close as possible and form the best possible judgments about what you know is out there and it's it's a notion of research being a kind of an emancipatory process in that when as we struggle and strive towards finding out about this uh, reality, you know, it provides the basis for more um, progressive um, kind of ways of doing things as human beings that can increase, you know, the level of human, um, human capabilities, human happiness, human, you know, meeting people's resource needs, etc. So I think it's, um, I don't claim to be any expert on critical realism. It does get really complex. Um, it's, I think it's a good frame for conducting uh, research of my type. It does allow us to kind of produce, to make claims from our research about um, sort of, uh, you know, recommendations for policy and practice, although obviously there will always, always be limits to that. And my study, obviously, because it's a PhD, it is 
you know, necessarily of a scale that is, um, you know, obviously only looking at some specific cases. There's limitations to the extent, obviously, I'll be able to generalize out from those specific case studies and say, you know, this, it's, it, you know, the extent to which that is more widely kind of generalizable. But I hope to be able to, you know, through looking intensely at these case studies, be able to kind of generate some knowledge, potentially some sort of small scale theory that is hopefully translatable to two different settings and allows us to, to sort of to see um, to see what's happening and hopefully add to a kind of a body well, of knowledge it's, and understanding. It's, 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 it sounds like there's, there's a lot of ambiguity in your field and, and you know, sort of some sort of foundational framework there could definitely be helpful so i, th I think yeah, i think you've definitely picked the right uh lens shall we say um to, to like <laughs> interpret your uh your finding i think i think i think probably I, I would align with you um in terms of my project as well and um, th there's definitely that kind of like middle ground between you know sort of like yes you know objective reality and you know is it really a chair <laughs> you know yeah. like so, so somewhere in between there where you have to kind of compromise like yeah, the, 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 yeah there, there is a, a subjectivity to mm. uh to knowledge but equally some things are are, are knowable so um i'm I, yeah I'm, I'm definitely there i'm definitely there with you um so also so how are you how are you gonna um, get this data then i i i i think you mentioned you were doing like in-depth uh interviews yeah, well, fairly, fairly sort of standard data collection kind mm. of tools that I'm using. Um, conducting effectively semi-structured interviews with my each of my sort of stakeholders. Okay. Uh, when I'm when I'm getting to interview the um, people who used advocacy services, we've uh, without sort of going too much into the depth of it, we've we've managed to I managed to come to an agreement with organisations that I'm working with that will collectively sort of identify some individuals whom it will be appropriate really to approach to be interviewed and could mm, sure. you know, take mm. part in that process in a meaningful way and have capacity to give sort of informed consent to take part in the interview so they may be a bit different in terms of how i approach them but so yeah semi-structured interviews and obviously collecting some core kind of collecting a very small amount of quantitative data from the organizations around referral rates etc it's primarily mm -hmm. obviously a qualitative piece of work um looking obviously at some some you know doc, bit of documentary analysis uh, as well about um well yeah obviously relevant documentation and um and i mean obviously everyone does a does a phd for a different reason in terms of of its contribution and you know, as we know what they want to get out of it. Um, I know some people who just want to do it just, just for the joy of learning and others that want to, <laughs> want to, that want to challenge, you know, politicians themselves. So, you know, when you've done your uh, study, like obviously you've collected all your insights and your, and your, and your findings, you know, what do you, what, what, what do you really hope to gain, um, you know, from, from this PhD? And, and, you know, I suppose in many ways, are you hoping to challenge like existing policy? You know, are there things that you think are, you know, unjust or, you know, are, are wrong in some way and, and I think could be improved. Um, I, know, I know, I know you're, you're not finished yet, but I, I imagine you probably got a good idea by the stage of, of your contribution and, and what, and, you know, and what effect it's going to have. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Um, the, the, one of my research questions really is quite specifically about looking to generate some recommendations for policy and practice. And as I mentioned, you know, when I when I kind of came was looking sort of really about three years ago now at what PhD area to what to have as my topic, um, you know, there did seem to be a bit of a gap in the market about advocacy at the time. One of the reasons why I chose it. Now, as it happens, it does seem in the last sort of year or two that really has been quite um, a bit not so much kind of academic work, but really in the policy sphere. Um, increased attention and uh, some of us have spoken about already and you know nice for example national institute for health and care excellence are currently putting together some guidelines about independent advocacy so it's kind of hotting up really and um those kind of core questions um that i've kind of mentioned are, are ones that i want to to um to kind of help play a little role i guess in in trying trying to address um <laughs> And I think really one of the big 
things that's kind of bedeviled the advocacy sector uh, to date is um, big questions about how how to evaluate it, how to evaluate how effective advocacy is. We saw a lot of references to this in the literature going back for some time. And in reality, you know, very much the kind of relationship-based nature of advocacy as always means it's going to be very difficult to actually kind of pin down, you know, clear outcomes and outputs from it. And obviously advocacy is only one part of that person's kind of, you know, journey, if you want to use a cliche through the adult social care system. So kind of isolating what its role and its part is, it's really quite difficult. Um, obviously, there's, there's other things as well that have, have affected, um, made it harder to evaluate. And that's things like a lack of, lack of good sort of national data about advocacy provisions. So I think what quite a few people have observed is that if we could sort of prove that advocacy is working to some extent and how do we prove it is is difficult but if we could help build that evidence base then that will help advocacy become more more and more embedded in a sense uh, and more and more um you know more it, it will help it be more appropriately resourced because obviously through the entire system this whole issue of you know, resourcing is absolutely kind of runs through it really like a stick of rock. And, you know, um, uh, certainly my experience of working, you know, with advocacy services, like with that through the, through the sort of sector as a whole is obviously advocates having a huge amount of huge level of cases that they're carrying. And sometimes the extent to which they can, you know, meet uh, the very kind of grandiose, shall we say, aims of, of legislation is is necessarily limited by by those big kind of caseloads as as kind of the other professionals obviously carrying huge caseloads so it's kind of seeing the aims and the, the goals of advocacy to the extent to which are translated uh into into reality basically um also one of the things i want to do is to shine a little bit of the spotlight on the role of advocates themselves because i think their voice hasn't been sort of almost paradoxically or ironically, whatever you want to say, being particularly strong themselves as an occupational group. And this whole question now about sort of professionalization is kind of rising to rising to the surface. So I think, you know, how they perceive their, their role, their occupational identity, the extent to which they feel supported in their role, I think that's going to be really important to look at. And I think improving there needs to be an improved level of mutual understanding between professionals. And by that, I mean, you know, traditional social care professionals and social workers as well, nurses and the like, people who work with advocates. There needs to be a strong, sometimes in my experience, advocates need to know a little bit more about what the social workers are kind of where they're coming from. But social workers quite often need to have better insights as, as well into where advocates are coming from and what their respective roles are. Um, and sometimes that bit of kind of knowledge breeds respect really. And what the evidence to date has shown is that in terms of the success of advocacy relationships, how do adjacent professionals view advocacy is really important. Because at the end of the day, with these statutory forms of advocacy is nearly always to social workers of the social care professionals who are referring people. So if the social worker is not making the right call on the referral in the first place, well, the person might not even get advocacy when they should be getting it. And there's been, you know, ob ombudsman decisions and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. serious case reviews and safeguarding that have shown, unfortunately, this is not always happening when it should be. Um, and also when advocates are involved, you know, they are hugely reliant on professionals kind of, um, kind of treating them in the right way, so to speak, in terms of sharing what is appropriate information, ensuring they're kept up to date, et cetera. So a lot of things there that are kind of want to help have no, no pressure there, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think I think you've you've you really made your made your life difficult there with uh oh, with, with that, that level of contribution. But at the same time <laughs> like it's essential work. Like I mean I I didn't I didn't feel like I Really knew that much beforehand and it, it's been really informative and you know, it, in many ways they they kind of seem like the 
you know, the sort of unsung heroes here, um, having to do this kind of this this kind of work, you know, having to manage, you know, at times quite conflicting short term mm-hmm. and long term interests, and definitely you, you kind of painted a, yeah, quite a quite a challenging picture there, um, and as well, you the way you kind of talked about, you know, the, like the difficulties of what they had to go through. In many ways, you know, it's kind of similar to how like a, a therapist should receive like some form of supervision, right. For, mm-hmm. you know, the, the difficulties that they're having, you know, the, the, the traumatic things they're having to hear and all that. And it, and it would, and it would seem to me like not only is it a crucial job, but one that would be quite strenuous, um, you know, to be able to do that effectively. I imagine you, you know, could possibly take a lot of it home with you. And um, yeah, I just, I just, I just hope that there is, there is that acknowledgement there. Um, you know, like within that field, and I'm sure you'll help that. Uh, you're 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 going to go a long way to helping that. Um, to 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 truly recognise uh, their their value in there and and their own well being. Um, if that makes sense. No, no, it certainly does. I think it's it's definitely important. That it definitely definitely needs looking at further. Yes. Um, well, I I mean I I won't uh, steal any more of your time, but I would just like to say obviously thank you for 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 sharing your your work with with myself and my uh, listeners today and. It's been really interesting to hear about your PhD. Um, yeah, and yeah, just 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 thanks for uh, sharing all, all your all your insights. It's been really really interesting. To hear no problem, Anton. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank no you. No problem. And um, yeah, I I wish you the very best of luck with your with your PhD, and I look forward to hearing about all the big changes that you're going to make. <laughs> Watch this space. Cheers now. All right. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Listening to the End of the World podcast with Anton Roberts plus guests. If you'd like to leave a message, please do so after the bleep. Like, comment, subscribe, because knowledge is for everyone. Oh, no.